Today we want to look at the, at, uh, the book of Numbers, and I want, to, uh, I want us to start with just this one single premise. And I want you to think about this and, uh, and think about the truthfulness of this as you look back at your own life. Uh, and this truth is this, you never know when the next moment that you face will demand you to make a decision that determines the next decade of your life. Let me, let's just ponder that for a second. You, you never know when the, the next moment, the, the one that's coming this afternoon or tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, until we meet again next Sunday, Lord willing, you never know when that next crucial moment is coming in your life, in the life of your children, in the life of your spouse, in the life of somebody significant in your life. You never know when that next moment in your life or their life will demand you or them to make a decision that determines, that determines, not that just will affect or make a small impact, but will determine the next decade of your life. I don't know if you've ever, if you could look back on your life and you could, you could, you could see maybe, yeah, that was that that yeah that moment that was one of those moments for me, and uh, and and I think I made the right choice, and uh, and things were good or things were different. Not necessarily they don't necessarily say the same. Or maybe you're thinking, yep, I remember that moment and I utterly failed and made the wrong decision. Uh, you, need, you need to know that both options are on the table for every single one of us because we've all had moments that we've succeeded. We've all had moments that we failed. But the fact is, is that our decisions have consequences, right? And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's developed as one of these axioms that I find myself saying often uh, to, to these, these four precious little souls that God has entrusted to me and Mandy, that if you, if you want different consequences, then choose different actions. If you want different results, then make different choices. It's pretty simple, right? And so the thing is, though, as we cast that vision of life, the question arises, well, in that moment, how will I know? How will I know the right way? And I want you to know today that God has given us His Word, His wisdom, and His Spirit to operate in such a way as we are transformed on a daily basis so that when that moment arises, that we don't have to break out our holy dice and throw them to determine a decision. A determine a decision. We don't have to cast lots, right? We don't, uh, we don't have to, to, to even to call up uh, somebody who tells us the will of God for our lives the Word of God working in cooperation with the Spirit of God that we expose ourselves to on a daily basis is supposed to transform us to where in that moment that what is valuable to God is valuable to us. And that's how we make a decision. That's how you find God's will for your life. It's really not complicated. But as my little self-deprecation here, as... As, uh, as I was running the same race that Andy was running yesterday, uh, my body was preaching to me uh, about three-quarters of a mile in that it's not, it's not the in-the-moment 
that I failed at. It's the preparation for that moment that I failed at, right? You get what I'm talking about, right? As I'm pondering if that grass is soft enough on the side of the road to just kind of veg out there for a little while, a mile like 1.3, you know? That's what we have a problem with. It's the daily discipline of exposing ourselves to the Word of God and walking in the Spirit of God to be transformed for that next moment. But even then... Are we ready when we, when we make that choice? Are we ready to follow God when it doesn't make sense? Or if you've made wrong decisions in the past, are you just stuck there? Can God bring purpose even into the valley of negative consequences that have come because of wrong choices? You see, the book of Numbers is far from a place that many would-be Bible students should falter when they're trying to read through the Bible in a year, which it is, if we're honest with ourselves. We get to the book of Numbers, and we're like, Numbers? I'm not an accountant. Well, what is this, you know? And we, we, we fail to see the big picture of why the book of Numbers is there, and oh, if we could just see the big picture of why the book of Numbers is there, then it would transform the way that we look at our very lives, and guess what we get to do today? We get to look at the big picture. And so, let's remember when we're reading through the Bible, that God doesn't waste his breath. Every word is precious. And so we want to fix our eyes on this part of the story today. We've said that God is the main character of this book. And as I just sang about, uh, and we just sang about, he will hold us fast. God is a God of perseverance. But what we've seen in these other books, uh, we've seen a characteristic of God that stuck out. First of all, Genesis showed us that God is a God of promise. He didn't have to, but he extended his promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, which is the hinge point of the entire book of Genesis. We saw in the book of Job that God is a God even in the midst of pain. He's not the God of pain and that he enjoys inflicting pain upon his children, but he's the God in the midst of the trial who speaks and who gives purpose and who breathes life into our, our situations even when they're painful. We saw in Exodus that God is a God of power as he put his power on display through the humbling of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then we saw last week that God is a God of purity in the book of Leviticus. That purity is an invitation into the presence of God. And so we came to a major landmark last week as we saw in the book of Leviticus that God is, uh, has restored access to his presence in a small, to a small degree. Abraham's family, Israel, had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and is at the base of Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with them by giving them the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle. And you remember we ended last week by saying the tabernacle was a huge step. God's presence on earth is now accessible to Israel, and that's a, that's, that's a big step in the right direction towards the goal of redemption. But the tabernacle, you need to understand, is just an intermediary step. The people could get closer than ever before to the presence of God, but they couldn't go in. Only Moses, the Levites, the priests could even draw near to the presence of God. And that was only possible after these rituals and sacrifices of purification. And you need to know that as, as we're in this part of the story, that God's desire is that we would have personal access to His presence. But that will come later. The focus now is on this awesome reality of God restoring that which sin has stripped away from us. And so how does the book of Numbers fit into the unfolding drama of Israel on the way to the land of promise? What truths will we see about God, about us, and about life 
And that's what we're going to dig into today. Now, you need to know the book of Numbers is still about the presence of God. We said that last week. We ended that that way last week with the book of of Leviticus. Moses, in the beginning, the very first chapter, the very first verse of the first chapter of the book of Numbers, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. And if you remember, when we ended in the last book, I mean, the last chapter of Exodus, God was speaking to Moses. From He was speaking out to Moses. Moses couldn't enter in because Moses was unholy. Moses was impure. Moses had, had impurity in him, uncleanliness in him. And so that's why the book of, of Leviticus was written. Was to, to give Israel and to give us these categories, these, these frames of reference in our mind to understand that God's holiness is not something that we just traipse into. We don't trample the presence of God. Even though God has invited us into His presence, even though God longs, He he wants for us to be in His presence, we do not dare, as corrupt and sinful human beings, we do not dare to think that we can enter into His presence in an unholy manner. We saw that with Moses' son, or uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They entered in, and and it says that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. We We don't... we don't want to go there, okay? We, we, we want to enter in. We want God's presence to be, uh, to be wonderful for us, to be life-giving for us. And that's what the book of, Le- of Leviticus is all about. And so as we come to the book of Numbers, it says that the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So the book of Leviticus has essentially worked. When Moses enters God's presence, he is given more wisdom that will help Israel understand the importance of God's presence in their lives. And so the book of Numbers is named uh, Numbers because of why? Who knows? There's numbers in it, that's right. But specifically, they're numbering what? People, right. Yeah, they're numbering people. There's a census that's taken at the beginning of the book, and at the end of the book. That's why it's called Numbers. The Hebrew name, though, for the book of Numbers, it it literally translates in the wilderness, which kind of sounds like a cool title, maybe better than Numbers, and if we called it in the wilderness, maybe some more people would be like, oh, I want to read that book, you know, uh, into the wild or something like that. You know, that's exactly what is going on here. Because uh, Israel has been out of Egypt for over a year, and most of that time, a lot, of, a lot of us don't realize this, but most of that time has been spent at the base of Mount Sinai. Think about that. Almost a year, out of, or a little over a year, out of Egypt, and at Mount Sinai for about a year, about 12 months. And so after they count the number of people in this very first chapter, they figure out that they've got about 2 million people total, total uh, because you look at verse 46 of chapter 1. It says, all those listed, now that's, these are men of fighting age, right? So it's like a military census. We're 603,550. And so you got to think about, there were uh, the Levites that were not listed. That says that in, in 147. Uh, Le- Levites that were not listed, so there was a whole tribe missing. And then their wives and children, right? And so uh, commentators estimate that the people of Israel are about 2 million strong at this point at the base of Mount Sinai. And before they leave out, God tells them how they're supposed to be arranged at camp and how they're supposed to be arranged as they journey into the promised land. Now, this journey into the promised land, let's just get the big picture here, should take them about two weeks. 
Who knows the time span of the entire book of Numbers? 40 years. So the big question now is, what happens to make a two-week journey turn into a 40-year journey? And that sounds like the worst family vacation I've ever heard of, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, 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 that's major uh, mis, uh, misdirection there. And so we want to understand that. But before they leave out, before they head towards the promised land, God tells them how they're supposed to be arranged when they camp and how they're supposed to be arranged as they travel. Remember, nothing is wasted in God's economy. So this is the way it looks, right? Uh, there are, there's the tabernacle right here in the middle, and this little pillar represents the presence of God, which came and kind of, uh, kind of covered over the tabernacle. And then you had the Levites and the priests immediately surrounding the tabernacle. And then God gives them instructions to line up orderly around the uh, north, south, east, and west sides of the tabernacle. Now, what do we think of immediately as New Testament Christians uh, when we see this? What do we think of? The arrangement. What does it look like? A cross, right? And that's definitely not out of bounds for us to look at and see. But I think even more than the, 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 the next thought that should come into our head is this. We saw last week that there were all of these sacrifices and all of these rituals and all of this de these definitions about what was clean and what was unclean. And the whole purpose of God giving them that in the book of Leviticus was to show them how the holiness of God should be thought about in every area of their lives. Do you remember we saw that last week? I think the application to make from just the arrangement of the camp at Israel, not to over-spiritualize it, but to just take it for what it is, that the presence of God is supposed to be at the center of our lives. The presence of God is meant to be at the center, in the place of, of primacy and priority in our lives. Now, the, the cool thing is that the, the cloud of God's presence resides on that tabernacle. But when the presence of God moves, what's Israel supposed to do? They're supposed to move too, right? And so they've got this really cool symbol, the manifest presence of God, in this what looks like a cloud. I imagine it kind of looked like a, like a non-destructive tornado, just kind of slowly swirling there in brightness and in glory. And I imagine that it was a pretty awesome sight that everywhere you went out your kind of front door of your tent there, what would you see? You'd see the cloud representing the presence of God. But the moment that you saw the presence of God move in a specific direction, you were supposed to move with it, all right? And God, because he's God, he didn't just give them instructions about how to camp. He gave them instructions about how to march, right? And once again, because nothing's wasted, the Ark of the Covenant, which was basically the box that held the Ten Commandments and other relics that they uh, collected, uh, even some on this trip and then uh, eventually into the future, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to lead the way, following the pillar of God's presence, and then you had the Levites and the tribes in a specific order. And so, not just the presence of God was supposed to be the center of their lives, but the presence of God was supposed to lead them wherever they went. And we, it doesn't take us long to understand the uh, significance for us. God was their leader. God was the center. And so, they embark on this journey to the promised land, what should be a two-week trip. And so this is how the book of 
Numbers is broken down. It's broken down into five sections. First of all, you've got the wilderness of Sinai, chapters 1 through 10. Then you've got two chapters, uh, or I guess that's three chapters of travel. And then you've got the wilderness of Paran, right? Then you've got another two chapters of travel. And then you've got the wilderness of Moab in chapters 22 through 36. And so this is, this is the way that the book is broken down. This is the way that the journey is broken down. And like we said, this journey is supposed to take two weeks, but it ends up taking about 40 years. And the roots of why it takes so long is immediately seen in Numbers chapter 11. So flip over your Bible with me to Numbers chapter 11. And let's look. Uh, after all of these different laws and commands are given uh, to the people of Israel about how they're supposed to be arranged, how they're supposed to march, and how they're supposed to... Um, how they're supposed to live as they're on their journey, they get to Numbers chapter 11. And what's the subheading in your Bible say? These are not inspired, but what does it say? The people complain. Okay. Any of us who've been on a family trip knows 15, 20 minutes into the trip, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I gotta go to the bathroom. Are we there yet? Right. I mean, that, well, you've heard that before, right? Anybody who's been on a family trip has heard that. It's good to know that Israel is no different, right? After three days, Israel begins to complain. They begin to murmur, "God, you brought us here, but we're thirsty. We're hungry." And it gets so bad. Even in Numbers chapter twelve, Miriam and Aaron—that's Moses' brother and sister—begin to badmouth him in front of the people. So it, it immediately goes downhill. And so the people murmur and complain, and this is, the, this is the core of their complaint. We'd rather be back in Egypt. What? You'd rather be back in Egypt. This is, this is crazy that you would rather be back in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron, as the siblings... Of, of, of uh, I mean, Aaron and, and Miriam, as the siblings of Moses, shows how close it was. You know, sometimes as leaders, we hear rumblings off in the distance. But this is like, this is like your best friend coming to you and being like, what are you doing? You're leading us into death, bro. This doesn't make any sense. You're talking irrationally. What do you, where are you taking us? Which leads to, in chapter 12, the most awkward uh, three siblings taken to the woodshed by daddy moment in the entire Bible. God literally calls Moses, Miriam, and, a and, uh, and Aaron to come to the tabernacle. He's like, hey, y'all, it's getting out of hand. Come here. And he basically reaffirms his leadership for Moses, but Miriam's not having it. And it says the presence of God lifted from that place, and Miriam had leprosy, right? And so Aaron and Moses are both like, oh, God, please, don't take our sister. They start interceding for their sister, which just goes to show you what sibling love should be all about, right? Please, God. Heal that strange thing on her face. You know, I mean, that's what, that's what it was. And so God, she was, uh, she was sent out of the camp for seven days. She, uh, she, she was unclean, and through that ritual that God had given them in Leviticus, she became clean again. But basically, it, it just gets bad, where there's this grumbling, and there's this complaining. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Well, finally, in, verse thir in chapter 13, they send out 12 spies one from each tribe, into the promised land. They send out 12 spies, one from each tribe, to scout out what the land looks like, to see the people there. 
And this is such a critical moment in the history of Israel that we just need to camp out, no pun intended, here for a moment, okay? And the reason we know this is a critical moment is because Old Testament prophets, poets, writers, and even the writers of the New Testament point back to this moment as a critical moment of failure that changed the course of lives in Israel. You know the story. Twelve spies were sent out, one from each tribe. Ten came back filled with fear, saying, The people of that land are huge. We can't do this. God's crazy if he thinks that we can go and do that. And then there's two. What are their names? Caleb and Joshua, right? Caleb and Joshua. And those two come back and say, Hey, guys, let me just tell you. God's got some great things in store for us. And we can tell you that whatever we have to go through to get in that land, it's worth it. Which should show you, just by way of just simple application, that there are always two ways to look at every situation and to look at life. You can, it's not about optimism and pessimism. It's about fear and faith. Listen, it's okay to be like, God, I have no idea how you're going to do that. But fear has a way of freezing you, but faith has a way of fueling you. Joshua and Caleb were men of faith, which is why the book after the next book, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is named Joshua. Because Joshua is a faith-filled leader, and with Caleb by his side as his right-hand man, these two guys lead Israel into the promised land, and they see, they see God do some amazing things. But the rest of the book of Numbers is not about Joshua and Caleb. The rest of the book of Numbers is about this frenzy, this fuel, I mean, a fear-fueled frenzy that these ten spies work the people, people of Israel up into. And turn over to Numbers chapter 14 and look specifically at verse 21. They start crying out. The people of Israel start crying out against Moses. How could you do this? How could God do this? God's, listen, God's crazy. I don't think he can do this. We're just going to go in there and we're going to die. I don't care what's there. I'd rather go back to Egypt. And they start, they start a mutiny against Moses. Remember, this is the people of God. They've seen Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, brought to their knees. They've seen God. They, these people have walked through the Red Sea, waters parted on either side, and then to turn around and watch Pharaoh's army get drowned as the waters receded into, uh, into their normal place, and Pharaoh and his army destroyed. These guys had seen firsthand God's mighty movement, but instead of the presence of God leading them, they would rather be enslaved. That should tell you something about human nature. We would rather have our comfort. We would rather have what's familiar than follow God when it's tough. And that's a warning to all of us. Because God does not respond kindly to that kind of mentality. Numbers chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. Look at it. God says, As I live... And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So, so two things that cannot happen. God will always exist. And the earth will always be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so he swears by himself. He says, as I live, verse 22, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and, have, and yet have put me to the test these ten times. 
and have not obeyed my voice, none of these men shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Your little ones, pick up in verse 31, I think, no, yeah, verse 31. Your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. So to summarize that, they look at God after the spies got back and said, we're not going in there over my dead body. God says, okay, I can make that happen. You want to mess with God? I mean, like, just let this be a holy moment for us right here, right now. God's put commands on you because He is right to do that as your Creator. And you really want to speak with pride and arrogance, acting as if you are autonomous? It gets worse. As if it could get worse. But it does. As for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And they wander for 40 years. When you say, why 40 years? Well, just look down at verse 34 of, of chapter 14. According to the number of days in which you spot out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. And the rest of this book, the middle section of this book, is devoted to their wanderings. The trip gets worse. At one point, even Moses, who's maintained some semblance of composure, I mean, Moses, the guy who who had to go back up to God and be like, hey, um, I got mad and broke these other commandments you gave us. You think you could like rewrite that for us, <laughs> right? I mean, that, for some reason, for some reason, and it, it behooves us to ask why, Moses gets angry later on in this book, and God says, speak to that rock and water will come from it. And Moses strikes the rock and loses the promised land for him. God says, you're not going to enter either. And do you know what it was? This is the danger of leadership. Do you know what it was that, that Moses did that made God take the promised land away from him? When he spoke, it's not that he spoke in anger, but it's that when he spoke, he put himself in the place of God. He's like, oh, you want water? Do I have to give you water? And he struck the rock. And so in doing that, he said, I'll get you water when it was God who had told him to speak. And God faithfully provided that water, but it came at great cost to Moses. And in this last section, in in 22 through 36, you can flip over to there. 22 through 36. The people are continuing to complain, continuing to rebel. They've not learned their lesson. And they end up wandering all around this wilderness until they end up right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. And they're in the plains of Moab, the wilderness of Moab. And all along the way, these 40 years, everybody who was 20 and above died all along the way. And they followed, like I said, journey should have taken two weeks. They're there 40 years. So they just went in circles. Just went in circles. And they stand across from the Promised Land. And they're sitting there in their little, uh, with the tabernacle in the middle, the presence of God there, the camp arranged the way that God had told them to arrange it, but they're just 
fighting and backbiting and murmuring and complaining, complaining, rebelling. And from their heart, they're just rebelling against God. Why have you done this? Why have you done this? We, look, my sister died. My aunt died. My uncle died. And I'm about to die. I mean, they're just going, going through all these motions of these hearts that complain. And yet, the narrative shifts because the king of Moab named Balak, he looks at the two million-ish people who are now encamped across the river from his city, and it freaks him out, just to be quite honest. I mean, he, he looks at it, and he's like, this is, listen, this is, this is not good. So what he does is, is leads to one of my favorite stories in the Bible, right? I think it's like everybody's one of the favorite stories. But he hires this guy named Balaam, right? We've all heard of Balaam and his donkey, right? And Balaam gets hired, and they come to Balaam, and they say, Listen, Balaam, we want you to go, and we want you to stand on the mountaintop, looking down into the plains of Moab, into that wilderness, and we want you to curse Israel. Now, remember Genesis chapter 12 through 15, when God gives the promises and makes the covenant with Abraham? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will what? Curse those who curse you. So here we've got the first recorded incident after Egypt, of somebody seeking to curse the people of Israel. And so, Balaam, after the whole talking donkey incident, which is just cool in and of itself, because God was trying to say, hey, Balaam, this is a bad idea, buddy. Don't, don't go. The Lord spoke to him said, don't go. Balaam went. He's beating his donkey. We all know that story. The angel appears to the donkey. The donkey turns, and there's like this Dr. Doolittle moment, you know, where he looks at Balaam and says, why are you hitting me, you know? Which, if that ever happens with your dog, please call me, okay? Because I want to I witness such a thing. But basically, they, he still gets up on the mountaintop. And Balaam, three different times, tries to speak curses upon Israel. And God sovereignly overrules what Balaam's brain sent to his tongue and his lips to form the curse God sovereignly overrules Balaam's words, and Balaam can speak nothing but blessing upon the people of Israel. You get that? I love, I love, I love seeing the character of God come alive in these stories. There's just no contesting the ability of God <laughs> in that he is watching his children complain on the plains of Moab, and be unfaithful. And yet, on the mountaintop, looking over at the plains of Moab, God says, guys, you're going to be unfaithful, and you're going to essentially curse me, but I'm going to overrule this false prophet's lips, and I'm going to make him bless you. Because I'm faithful. And I keep my promises. And that's how the book of Numbers begins to come to a close. Balaam trying to speak curses, but only being able to speak promises. And then Abraham standing poised, uh, seeing a new generation poised to enter the promised land. And he's, he's an elderly man knowing that he can't enter the promised land. And he just wants to impart wisdom to this new generation of Israelites. And that sets up for us the book of Deuteronomy. And so we're saying, what can we learn from this book? Well, that's what we want to talk about just with a few minutes we have left, okay? You get the story now. You get where it falls within the, 
the first five books, the foundation, the, the origin story of Israel's history. But, but let's draw out the main themes of this story that we see that serve as a truth for us to meditate upon. The first truth that we see here from the book of Numbers is the truth that all of the poets and all of the writers and all of the prophets look back upon. The fact that Israel had experienced God and yet all they could do was complain. And so we want to we talk about first this idea of communicate. Don't complain. Listen, complaining helps that many people. Zero. In fact, you want to know a good definition of complaining? John Calvin said the human heart is an idol-making factory. The problem is not that we worship God wrongly. The problem is that, they, that we create our own gods to worship. We worship the wrong gods, little g-gods. Complaining, thus, therefore, is the singing of a song of worship. Think about it in those terms. This is complaining. It's a song of worship sung by a person with a flawed perspective. It is a song of worship sung by a person with a flawed perspective. The next time you hear someone complaining, recognize that that's a, that's a worship problem. And because we human beings are wired to worship, then complaining is a song of worship. It is words of worship from a flawed perspective. It's worship based on falsehoods instead of truth. Complaining is what brought about the curvy path of the wilderness journey. And here's the deal. If you want to complain, complain in prayer. Honestly. Like, God's really not scared of your complaints. In fact, if you, want, if you want a great example of this, you'll read this when we get to the Psalms. There, there are literal Psalms in which people are complaining in the presence of God. They are complaining as they worship. But God doesn't condemn that. You know why? Because as we saw in the book of Job, God loves it. God loves it when we come into His presence honestly. God hates fake worship, y'all. Let, let, us, let us learn that lesson, please. God hates fake worship. He hates when you masquerade and try to bring something before Him that is not real. When you just try to parade how good life is to others. He, it, listen, He doesn't want you coming into His presence to parade your complaints to other people. But if you want to go and you want to lay your complaints at His feet, in His presence... That's where truth impacts you to transform your perspective because that's what it is. It's a flawed, complaining is a flawed perspective. So if you try to worship God as you complain about the situation, God will reshape your perspective on that situation because that's what kind of God He is. But complaining done to other people, it sucks the life out of things, doesn't it? We've seen this in our own lives. Complaining just sucks the life out of things. And what it does is it, it creates a path that is not the path of life. Because there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. And so complaining creates a curvy path of destruction, leading to destruction. 
But we don't want destruction, do we? We want life. Guess what? Just like Melissa said earlier, life begins when we fix our eyes on the Lord God. And so if you want life, don't fix your eyes on a false perspective of a situation. Fix your eyes on the one who brings purpose and definition to every season of life, to the one who will direct your path. And, it, and that's what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, that if when you delight yourself in the Lord, when you trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways you acknowledge Him, He will make your paths what? Straight. You want a straight path to, to the will of God? Get rid of complaining in your life. Quit complaining about what God isn't doing and begin to fix your eyes on the God who is at work around you even when you can't see it. Communicate. Don't complain. Secondly, though, we see a pattern for life. A pattern for life. We see this in the arrangement of the tabernacle and the camp around it, but we also see it in uh, Numbers chapter 11 with this thing called manna, right? Yeah, manna, right? Now, if you've watched the videos, manna literally means, what is it? You know that? That when this stuff plopped on the ground, they went up and they're like, manna. That's Hebrew. Y'all didn't know I could speak Hebrew. Hey, manna. What is that? <laughs> That's God's provision. You see, God's provision may, may not look like you think it looks, but it's still His provision. And so it sets us up to understand the way that God works in our lives. You see, we don't have manna that falls on the ground each day for us. We don't have a cloud moving in front of our eyes, but instead we have something better. We have the Word of God on the inside working with the Spirit of God to transform us. It, I, I work at the, uh, uh, every third Tuesday, I, I work at the Judson Ministry Center. Um, and people come in and they, they get a box of food. And we have a counseling room where we sit and we talk. And they always have uh, copies of the, um, the little devotional book, Our Daily Bread. And I love to explain to them why it's called Our Daily Bread. Because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? We, we, we get that from this season of Israel's existence. In that Israel needed something, God provided it. They needed sustenance, God provided it. They needed water, God provided it. You need life, God provides it. You need wisdom, God provides it. You need insight, God provides it. But He doesn't provide it the way that you think He will. He doesn't provide it with a loud voice from heaven. He doesn't usually provide it with a well-timed event in your life. God wants to provide His wisdom, His insight, His truth, His life for you on a daily basis, like we said at the very beginning, as you consume that daily bread and come into the presence of God and you fix your eyes on His promises through His Word, and as you fix your eyes on His promises through His Word, the Spirit of God builds the values of God into your heart and your mind. 
He helps you treasure what God treasures. He helps you desire what God desires. And as you begin to desire what God desires, then you begin to see where God is moving in your life. It's not about a pillar in front of you. It's about the spirit of ins- inside of you and the spirit that is at work around you. And what he does is he takes what looks like an unseen path And because God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that Spirit and that Word have this awesome mixture inside of you to make your path straight in front of you. But like Mr. BJ said this morning, people typically don't pray until they get in a crisis. Guess what? Can I tell you, American Christians that you've been sold a bill of goods and that nobody's explicitly told you to only pray when you're in trouble. But for some reason, because we've got wealth, because we've got everything we need, it's only when God takes away our comfort that we hit our knees. That is not God's design for your life. And you know how I know? Because that kind of pattern results in complaining. When God doesn't do things my way, the way that I think He should do them, what comes out of me is complaining. But if I will fix my eyes on the promises of God, and as the Spirit moves around me and inside of me, and I begin to value what God values, then what happens in me is the opposite of complaining. It's not worship from a flawed perspective. It's worship from a real perspective. And as God moves around me, He directs my path. And when I hit a crisis situation, I go to the same place that I'm going on a regular basis, which is to my knees, into the presence of my Father, to say, God, you've led me here. I know you'll lead me through. And what's awesome is I see that in your lives for some of you. And I pray that that's a reality for every one of you. It's a pattern for life that we see in the book of Numbers. But continuing, there's two more. Continuing. The next thing I want you to see, I want you to see the impact of generational obedience. The impact of generational obedience. It is absolutely true that the spiritual decisions of one generation impact the next generation While God fulfilled His promise to Israel, the attitude of the younger generation was shaped by the complaining and the rebellion of the older generation. You know how I know this? It's because not long after the victories of Joshua, you have the devastation of Judges that we've seen. Not long after another generation sees God move mightily in Joshua, does the same thing, the same pattern repeat itself. Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges. It's just this cycle. Where did it come from? It didn't come from nowhere. That's horrible grammar. But it didn't come from nowhere. It came because the younger generation was shaped by the decisions of their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents Because all of that set a culture. Now, God set a culture in the Ten Commandments. And God set a culture in Leviticus. But the cultures of mankind, the spirit of this age, 
is at work in the sons of disobedience to shape a culture. And what happens is, is that God sets a culture, and then even in our day, Christianity creates a subculture. We create another culture that in a lot of ways is against God's culture. And so, adults, this is on us. Because every single time we come into the presence of the Lord and the Lord rebukes something in us, He's trying to change our culture. He's trying to change our marriages. He's trying to change our homes. He's trying to change you personally on the inside so that the, the person that you're becoming is a blessing and not a curse to your children and to your grandchildren. But when we don't submit and we don't surrender and we don't bow the knee, we stiffen our necks, we become like Pharaoh and not like Joshua. And what happens is exactly what happened in Israel. Numbers chapter 14, verse 33. Write it down. Go read it later. I'm going to read it to you right now. God tells the people of Israel who disobeyed, He says, your, your children will wander in the wilderness as shepherds. But there's a dual meaning. It's not just that they're going to be shepherds of sheep, but they're going to have to be shepherds of your dead bodies as they wait for you to die for God to move again. Just, just let that hit you. And think about the necessity of generational obedience. That's what God says to them. Your children will become shepherds. Not just of sheep as their livelihood, but they, they older generation, they're going to have to wait for you to die for God to move again. Because you, by your decisions and by your stiff necks, you have made it to where God will not move in your midst. God have mercy that we would set a culture of stubbornness and of pride and of faithlessness that would hinder our kids from seeing passionate, biblical Christianity. There was an apologist who said that, that in your house, or I mean, uh, in our culture, we have, we have people who, who, gay, who, who range in spiritual interest from one to four. He said, your ones are people who passionately love Jesus. Your twos are kind of the people who are interested in the faith, but they're kind of watching, you know, to see all these things come about, if they're real or not. The threes are, uh, you know, they're just kind of, they think Christianity or faith is irrelevant. And then fours are hostile, right? So one to four. He said, parents, if you're sitting here today and you would categorize yourself as a one and you're trying to raise your children as ones, guess what? They're not ones yet. They're twos. And the reason that so many twos become threes or fours is because so many parents who think they're ones aren't really ones. They're not really ones. They're faking it. They're faking being a one. And what happens is, is those little twos looking at you, they see right through that mask. We want to leave a legacy of faithfulness, of surrender, not of selfishness and destruction. And we do that by following the pattern of life that we talked about a few minutes ago. But lastly, the last thing we see, and this sets us up for tonight, is the enduring faithfulness of God. You see, even when Israel was complaining, remember, Balaam was up on the mountain, and he couldn't do anything but bless Israel. 
while Israel was down there complaining? You see, this is God's story. And what God does is He looks at the choices you make, and He says, if you want those things, you have them. But as I've already told you, there's no life there. You want those things? You want those those choices in your life? You want that kind of culture in your home? You want that kind of attitude from your spouse? Have it. And He will let you walk away from His influence if you want to. But you're not going to thwart the purposes of God. This is God's story. And what happens with Balaam's third oracle is what we're going to talk about tonight. Because as God's redemptive story unfolds, Jesus becomes clearer and clearer and clearer on the horizon. And there are two significant ways in the book of Numbers that he is clear. Jesus, coming thousands of years later, is clear in the rest in, in, in the book of Numbers. And tonight we're going to talk about that because it's a beautiful picture. And so just to recap, if you had to look at your life over the past week, has the presence of God been the center of your life? Are you being transformed daily by God, by consuming His Word and being sensitive to His Spirit? Have you let complaining sneak in as a pattern of your life in some sphere? Maybe it's work, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's, a, the, the, maybe it's a church. Maybe it's God's meant for you to find rest and refuge here, but every time you come here, you, you, you just can't get past something that you complain about. Beware. That would be God's word for you today. Beware. The truth of God's persevering love should lead us to walk throughout this life with an attitude of surrender and submission. And therefore, today as we come to this time of invitation, I don't, I don't, I don't really buy into the whole rededicate, recommit your life, because I think that every single Sunday as Christians come face-to-face with the truth of God's Word in this corporate setting, and God speaks uniquely as He does, we should be recommitting our lives. We should be resurrendering our lives. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do today. We've, he- we've seen these warnings. Now let us heed these warnings. We've seen how God's presence should be the center, and you want God's presence to be the center. So don't let what kept you from putting God at the center last week surrender today so that when you try to live out this week, don't make the same mistakes again. That's the the invitation. That's what God offers us today is a chance to refresh our perspective and to walk with Him. And that's my prayer for us. Let's pray together.